the National Archives podcast series, Inheritance in Scotland, Testaments and Retours, presented by Dr. Bruce Dury. Lovely to be back at uh, the National Archives, or, or the other National Archives as we refer to them, <laughs> up in Scotland. Before I start though, I just want to share something with you. I was doing, not wasting my time here, I was doing some research uh, in the reading room and I come across something I had never ever encountered before which is some papers relating to an antecedent of mine called Charles Dury, 1857. And the story is basically he's been banged up in debtor's jail in Jersey for not paying his bill at the pub, right? And he's in prison and he starts writing letters of complaint to everybody, not about the fact that he's in prison, but about the detention of his wearing apparel. Yeah? So he starts to write to, when I say everybody, I mean the bailiff of Jersey, the lieutenant of Jersey, and Her Majesty Queen Victoria, asking for the return of his trousers. <laughs> and I don't quite know where the story finishes, but there's, there are a large number of papers, all of which I've copied, and I'm going to have fun going through these later today, uh, including this, this really, um, oh, you can just tell that the bailiff of Jersey is so fed up with this guy, you know. Uh, complaining of being illegally detained under the, the detention of his wearing apparel. Whether or not Queen, Mag uh, Queen Victoria managed to get his trousers back to him, watch this space, we'll find out. But the, uh, the, the story of Charles Dury's trousers, I think, will run and run. Okay? Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do today is to run down two aspects of inheritance in Scotland. Uh, they are intimately connected but also separate. I will deal first with um, what we shouldn't call wills, because there aren't really wills in Scotland except sort of, and then we will deal with the inheritance of land. Uh, but I hope to persuade you at the end of the day that there is genealogical value in certain records that you might not consider looking at, okay? Right. Uh, we will look first of all at testaments and aspects of executory, and then secondly, um, the inheritance of land and other property. Testaments, as they should probably be called, are actually sometimes disappointing in Scottish genealogy. They don't always contain the names of any heirs. Why is that? There is a reason, and I'll come to it. They were, uh, up until the 1860s, and here's the punchline, it was not possible to leave real property, that's in the sense of real estate, you know, land, buildings, heritable titles, in a testament. You just couldn't do it. In a similar way to uh, the way the English used to have this, this distinction between bequeath and devise, you know, you bequeath money but you devise land. Similarly in Scotland there's a distinction between movables and immovables and testaments could only deal with movable property. Inheritance of land and, and buildings and so on uh, was by immovables, was by retour. We'll also deal a wee bit with saisons which are land transfers. Okay, uh, I won't go through this in any great detail, but the thing to realise is that, you know how in England, the, the whole business of, let's call it family law, stayed with the ecclesiastical courts right up until the late 1800s, um, prerogative courts and so on, and uh, uh, in Scotland that went away at the Reformation. They took the old commissary courts, which were diocesan courts, which dealt with uh, matrimonial affairs, divorce, but also executory, wills and uh, testaments and so on. And they put them into 22 commissary courts, which were secular, but they kept exactly the same footprints as the old diocese, which is quite clever. 
What that means is that you can't go looking on a county basis necessarily for commissary stuff, for testaments. You have to look at particular commissary courts. Uh, also, you were not required necessarily to go to the nearest one to where you lived or the one within whose footprint you lived. You could use any court and people often chose the nearest one, although it was in the next commissary area, or they did everything uh, at Edinburgh. And Edinburgh, which was the, the sort of premium inter pares, the greatest among equal of these, dealt with certain um, top-level stuff, including anyone who died abroad and had property in Scotland, etc. So, let's not worry about that. This system uh, remained until the 1820s, loosely, when the sheriff court system gradually came in. And that wasn't a kind of overnight thing, January the 1st, you know, bang. It took, it took a few years for that to slide in, but the sheriff courts took over the commissary function. So if you're looking for testamentary, executory type stuff, you look in the commissary courts before the 1820s. After that, you look in the, the sheriff courts and the borough courts for, for those records. Now, here, here, are the, here are the rules up until 1868, okay? And there will be a test, so you've got to memorise this. There is this distinction between the immovable or the heritable property, think of that as land, buildings and heritable titles, roughly, and the movable property, which is anything you could pick up and carry. This would include farm animals. I've yet to see a record of anybody picking up and carrying a cow, but they're, they're considered movable. The eldest son, actually right up until 1964, the eldest son inherited everything heritable which is to say the farm and the house, right? And if there was no son, it was divided amongst the daughters equally and their children, and they are known as um, portioners in that case. Up until 1868, when you could not bequeath heritable property in a testament, people adopted a number of legal tricks to get round this. And one of the most common ones was the trust disposition and settlement. And it works exactly the same way as a trust does today, which is before you die, long before you die, you put everything you want into trust. You set up a trust and you appoint trustees, you know, your brother-in-law, your lawyer, the local minister, whoever it happens to be, and you give everything to them with the right to remain in your property and enjoy its use and benefits. And then when you die, you don't own anything, so the, the laws don't kick in, the trust then disburses it to whoever it's to go to according to the trust and people therefore found ways to subvert primogeniture or make sure it went to a particular line or something. I have one lovely trust deed that says nothing to my brother William for he is ain swine. <laughs> you think poor William what did he do? So there are, there are uh, tricks to get around it but simple rule is eldest son's going to get the farm the rest of the children equally are going to get an equal share of the movables. Okay. What were immovables? Well, they were land and buildings, minerals and mining rights, those kind of things, uh, land and houses, but also what are called, the, just to confuse everything, we've got heritables and we've got movables, and they're different, but there are heritable movables. Because, yeah, I know, because you can't move into an empty house and run an empty farm, right? You need a, a table and some chairs and nice forks to sit at. So the, the eldest son, if it was the eldest son, got what was called the best of the movables. Didn't really mean the best, but enough to, to work with. And titles, of course, hereditary titles and offices are incorporeal hereditaments. So a coat of arms or 
an earldom or a barony goes to the eldest son. And we'll come back to some of those records a wee bit later on. Movable property is anything you can pick up. Now, we're going to come across these terms, goods, gear, sums of money and debts later on, because that's really um, what you uh, consider when totaling up the estate. And I said earlier that you sometimes don't get the names of any heirs in a testament. And here's why. There were strict rules as to who gets what. The widow, if there were a widow or widower, had to get a third. I think I'm right in saying it's still the law in Scotland that you can't disinherit a widow from a third of the estate to this day. And this is known as the widow's part or the use relicti, the right of, of the relict. Um, the children could have a third called the bairn's pert or the legatine. And then the dead person was considered to have a third to himself. Now, why has the dead person got the third? Has he found a way to take it with him? You think, no. It's because they, <laughs> yes, indeed, they're Scottish, right? <laughs> Different rules in Aberdeen, you're quite right. Um, the, this is the, the part you could dispose of according to your, and here it comes, will, right? That's what a will is in Scotland. It's disposing of a third, at most, of your movable property. That's it. Now, there are complicated rules about what happens if there isn't a widow and what if there aren't any children. But, and if he didn't leave a will, it's half and half, widow and the kids. If there's no widow, it gets split up various ways. Bits of it go to elder brothers, bits go to younger brothers. But at its simplest, it's the widow and the children get the movables. Now, because that's laid down in law, there's no need to actually name any of these people in your testament. It's going to happen anyway. And if you didn't leave a will in Scotland, if you left no expression of your wish, so you're intestate, yeah, you could still have a testament because your estate could go for confirmation. We don't have probate in Scotland. Confirmation to the commissary court and a testament would derive from this. And there are two classes of these documents, really. If you, had, if you did leave a will, then the document that you get on executory is a testament, testamentar, contains a will. If not, and the court gives you the document, it's a testament dative, dative in the sense of given to you. And that's how you can tell the difference. That will contain a will and that will not. You'll see these in the indexes as TTI, testament, testamentar and inventar, testament dative, TDI, testament dative and inventar. Now, just like in England, most people didn't bother leaving a will or a testament, because, or leaving a will anyway, because, you know, no need. The wife is still alive and Johnny's going to get the farm sort of thing, so it didn't really matter. And, however, sometimes there was a need to go to the court for a testament dative, especially if there were lots and lots of debts, either to gather in or to disburse out. And that's where these documents end up coming from. So... You need, you either have a testament testamentar, and that's fine, in which case you will have nominated probably an executor, which will probably be your, your widow or widower, your wife or husband, or your eldest son or something. But uh, this had to be confirmed by the court. If there's no will and the court is doing the business for you, the court will appoint an executor, who again typically would be the, the, the widow, for example. All right. Now, the great thing about this is that these documents remain in very much the same form 
and using all the same terminology and complete sentences from the 1500s right through to the middle 1800s. In other words, if you know how to read them, you can tell what they say, because they always have exactly the same structure. And the structure goes like this. In a testament testamentar, there are four chunks to it. The first bit, the first clause is the introductory clause. Who died, where, when, where did he live, that sort of thing. The second bit is the inventar, the inventory of, of the estate. Uh, property that, uh, sorry, movable property that exists, uh, debts on and out, money he owes, debts on and in, money he has to collect, the ebulliments of his body, ebulliments, what a great word, I guess the English equivalent is habiliments, isn't it, I suppose? Adrian, you ever come across a habiliment? Yeah, it's the things found on your body when you die, your shoes, money in your pocket, your jacket, one of these I've got it says, in silk handkerchief used. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have washed it, you know. Anyway, um, and uh, then, if there is one, a copy of the, and this is the real term for it, a latter will or a legacy. And that's where we get the term latter will and testament. That's a testament testamentar. If it's there, if it's not, then it's not there. And sometimes that's not written into the testament, but there's a reference to it because it's been deposited earlier in a separate deed. Uh, and then finally, you get a confirmation clause which says, the court has done all this and it's fine and here's my name and it's dated and that. And that is the bit that the English would consider probate. We call it confirmation. If, however, you've not left this, the structure of the document is exactly the same without that clause. You've got the introductory clause, the inventory, and the confirmation clause. Now what this does is it gives the executor the right to intromit with the estate, to move into it in a physical sense, but also to move into it in an executory sense and start, you know, settling it up and everything. And you, you guys would consider this the same as letters of administration, yeah? Or admon in the, in the Irish. So that's what we've got, the three clauses, maybe with a will clause after number two. That's the headlines. <laughs> yeah. If you remember nothing else, remember that. So let's look at one. Let's just take a quick look for five minutes at a testament. This is uh, 1759. The readings, the writing's very easy to read uh, at that time. But I'd like you to get some of the clause, the, the, the terms ringing in your ears. The testament dative and inventory of the goods, gear, and debts of the umhoil, there's a good Scottish word, the umhoil, meaning the late, yeah, the quondam, uh, George, George Lord Rutherford, within the parish of Burnt Island and the sheriffdom of Fife, spelt like bananas, uh, the time of his decease, which was on the 18th day of June, and here's another good bit, last by past, that's the way they express it, so it's the June immediately preceding whatever date this document is. Uh, and here's another classic phrase, faithfully made and given up by, and this says Margaret, Lady Rutherford, relict of the said defunct. <laughs> when you go, you're defunct, and you leave a relict because you're in while, okay? And discerns, sorry, uh, re relict and executrix dative quiet relict. In other words, the court has said, you know, you're the widow, you can be the executrix, 
that's okay. Discern to him, brackets, after due citation by public edict, blah, 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 by decree of the Commissariat of St Andrews, dated the 29th day of August, 1759 years. Bingo, we know what year he died. It's the 18th of June, is it? Yes, immediately preceding that. There's your introductory clause. But the point is that every one of those phrases you see there, you will see identically in documents way back that, where you can't read the handwriting because the paleography is a bit tricky. So if you get that formula in your head, you've cracked it. I will point out right now that this is George Dury, Lord Rutherford. All right? And you're sitting there looking at me thinking, yes, he looks noble. <laughs> no? Um, and I am indeed descended from the Lord's Rutherford. Now, I, I stand before you untitled and without a fortune, okay, which is why I'm working for a living. And it's all thanks to this guy, because he was a complete waster, right? <laughs> he thought he was Lord Rutherford. His son thought he was Lord Rutherford. No one else thought they were Lord Rutherford. <laughs> and another thing I've been doing today is I've actually found the letters that this guy wrote to Lord Newcastle when he was Prime Minister, uh, complaining that he'd been robbed of his title and the lands had been taken off him and asking for a job as Commissioner of Taxes for Kirkcaldy or maybe a military pension or a job, you know, just give me something, because he's got nothing. And we'll see why. You're thinking, Lord Rutherford, he's worth a bob or two. Well, let's find out. So let's go to the inventory. And there's pages of this nonsense, but here, here's the beginning of it. It says, there was pertaining and belonging to the said defunct, the time of his decease foresaid, in which the executrix noticed the teal day, indicating a, an abbreviation, an elision, rather, gives up for confirmation the particular movables underwritten, estimated and valued as follows, viz, imprimis in the first place, uh, in the dining room of the defunct's house, a small marble table at, what would that be? Five. That is a double S. That is a Scottish double S. Very similar to the German Scharfe. You know, think of it as a long S followed by a short S. So that's the symbol for solidis, shillings. And you'll see that a lot in Scottish documents. Uh, an eight-day clock at, and you can do this one, one lib, a pound, and that's an X. Solidis, one pound, ten shillings, yes. Uh, two small dining room tables at five shillings, blah, blah. And it dribbles on like this for ages down to uh, uh, pictures, much torn and damaged, five shillings. Other pictures and frames, two shillings. I mean, you know, it's like Steptoe's junkyard in there. It really is. <laughs> and at the bottom of this, the interesting bit is you get the, you get the summa inventarii, the sum of the inventory, which is what this guy is worth when everything's collected in and paid and all the rest of it. And you can do this one with me, actually, because uh, what, what's that there? Right, but what does it mean? Yes, it's not a pound sign because it's followed by lib. It's 50 pounds. And then V-I-I-I, -I -I, eight shillings. Notice the last I is always given as a J, just so that you know it's the last one, right? And one penny. Sterling, right? Sterling. Which in Scots money, now that's interesting. <coughs> Scots money went away in 1707, but they were still, in documents up to 80 or 90 years after that, you will still find accountings in sterling and Scots money. It's almost like, you know how your granny never really got hold of the decimal currency? 
You know what I mean? And she used to say things like, a pound, that's nearly a pound in the old money and stuff. I think the same thing is going on. And down, so down here, he gives the Scots money equivalent. Let's see if we can do that one. If I tell you that's a C, V-I-C, therefore 600 IV, four. So 604 pounds, yeah? That's an X, V-I-I, 17 shillings. And in fact, if you multiply that by 12, that's the figure you get because here is, now you should remember this, here's the trick for converting Scots money, Scots pounds, pun Scots, into sterling. In the 1400s, it was one to one. In the fifth, roughly, up to 1460. Up to Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, it was four to one. After her, it was five to one. Throughout the 1600s, it was 12 to one. And that's the rate, the rate that obtains at this point. And indeed, if you multiply 50 pounds, 17 and a penny by 12, you get 604 pounds, whatever it is, 17 shillings. And then this lovely phrase, salvo justo calculo, which is the lawyer saying, if I've got that right. <laughs> no? I'm serious, that's what it means. Saving the correct calculation, you know, that, that sort of thing. But what is, what is 50 pounds? Uh, yeah, what is 50, what is it, seven, 58 pounds? No, rubbish. What is 50 pounds sterling, 75, what's that today? It's, at, it's maybe 15 or 20,000 pounds. That's his total value. What's your house insurance? It's probably 40 or 50,000, yeah? I don't mean the annual premium, I mean the, uh, the, the contents value. So he's not got much, not at all. And uh, he didn't leave a will, there's no need, because um, it's confirmed on the 29th day, blah, blah, and David Lord Rutherford has become now there's a good word. What's the word at the end there? Pronounced Cationer. Uh, gives bond, surety, guarantee for the executrix. Okay? So who do we know? We've got George Dury, Lord Rutherford. He's died. He's dead. We've got Margaret, his wife. And so therefore, who is David, Lord Rutherford? Yeah, certainly his heir. Probably. In fact, it does happen to be his son. But you notice that the only mention of them is in the legal bits of the thing. Yeah? She's named as executrix, she's named as Kishner. Nowhere does it say David Lord Rutherford is the heir. Doesn't have to, because he's going to get it by law. Now, he didn't leave. He didn't leave a, a will. So I've, I've actually picked from an, a totally different uh, testament someone who did leave a will, Margaret Annan, back in 1573. And I won't drag you through it, but the interesting thing about it is that she uh, nominates her spouse... Where is he? John Wardlaw, right? As her executor and intromitter, and that's fine. And then she leaves to her brother, George Annand, 12, 26 pounds, and to her sister, Janet Annand, 40 pounds. And then this is lovely. And the remnants of her part of the goods to be divided equally amongst her three doctors. And if any of them happens to die, it gets split up between the living ones, blah, blah. To be divided at her said spouse's discretion, except, could you please make sure that my chain goes to Margaret, my belt goes to Marion, and my rings go to Jane. So there you've got the husband, the brother, the sister, and the three daughters all named in a family tree, effectively, in a will. Yeah, good stuff. So if you're looking for names, testaments, testamentor, you notice that she left about, what, 70 pounds, 200 years before George Lord Rutherford left, well, this is Scots money, 
£600, but she, she's left a lot more actually in real terms than he has, and she's nothing special. Incidentally, I've looked for all these people. They don't appear in any other documents. Uh, I know that's at the very beginning of church records up there, so it's not surprising. There's no, there's no trace of these people in any other uh, document that a genealogist would get to, so that is the evidence of their existence and their relationship. Am I turning you on to testaments? I hope so. Basically, uh, you, th there are rules to who gets what, okay? But you can't pass on property, remember, at this point. Now, there are, there are various terms that you'll come across, you'll see in all testaments, things like, well, commissariat confirmed, but phrases like faithfully made and given up by, pertaining and belonging to, goods, gear, sums of debts, sums of money and debts, etc. And uh, I shan't go into unclaimed estates because the different system in Scotland. But wh where do you get all these? Well, we have every testament that exists that we know of has been digitised and is, is available on Scotland's people. And in fact, to search them is free. Uh, it costs you, I think it's five pounds to download the actual document. You do have to watch, of course, because there are the usual things about uh, people with the same name or the same person with different names and all the tricks that you know. So just, just be careful about it. And you go to Scotland's people to get them. There is information on the commissaries at Scotland's people as well. You could, there, but they're also the, 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 the headlines, as it were, just the, the, the indexing is actually printed in commissariat books done by the Scottish Record Society, I think it is, about 100 years ago. And they're in most big libraries. I bet you've got a set here. So you can just look them up. And the sort of information they give you is this. I'll show you how it works. Here is Scotland's people. And I went looking for a Mowbray. Let's bear that name in mind, because we're going to come back to the Mowbrays. Um, and I found 58 matches. I didn't cut it down by forename. I didn't put in a year range. You can get all wills up to 1901 by this system. And I didn't specify a court, so I got 58 matches. If I also included name variants, I got 145 matches. But I could narrow it down a bit more. Uh, but these are the kind of record. This is what you get for the free search. And sometimes, frankly, it's enough uh, to know that Mary Campbell Mowbray sometime resided there, was daughter of the late Robert Mowbray, so therefore she must have married a chap called Campbell, yeah. And that's where they lived. And here's one which is actually someone who's got property in Ireland, interestingly. And that might be, that might be enough to let you do the genealogy. You don't need the document. If I did narrow down by putting in first names and date ranges, I can get down to actually the person I was looking for, George Cranston Mowbray, who happens to have left what you might consider to be an army will, I suppose. Although that's just before the, uh, just before the mutiny, isn't it, 1853? Yeah, so that's probably why he wrote the will. <laughs> nope, they're coming over the hill at us. And it's lodged in the... Um, Edinburgh Sheriff Court, he didn't leave much. But, good system. Uh, you can also, by the way, do a free text search, not just for surnames. So I just put in Dury into the keywords to see what would come up, and it gave me lots of things, including people who lived at places called Dury, or who were married to somebody called Dury, or uh, this, this one proved very interesting because the unicorn is, that's one of the ships that went out to Darien. That's what the company in Scotland is all about. And he comes from Colton of Dury, Yes, we used to own complete towns as well, and now we don't, you know. Shower that they are. 
So that, that's the, the summary, really, is that they're, they're sometimes not as revealing as you might hope, the wills, because um, you don't name the heirs because you don't need to. But if you get one that actually has a will in it, you might get some information in that. And just to prove my point, would you like to read this along with me? <laughs> well, it's actually uh, David, yes, it's another one of mine, David Dury, uh, 1601. It goes, the testament, dative, and inventar of the goods, gear, sums of money, and debts pertaining to the umwild David Dury of that ilk, the time of his decease, hua, decessit in his place of Scotch Craig in the paraquin of Lucas in Fife in the month of etc. blah blah, faithfully made and given up by. You notice something? It's exactly the same as that. In other words, if you've got a testament in front of you that you can read and one that you can't, the chances are you can pick your way through it phrase by phrase because they will be pretty much the same thing. And that's a great... That I'll be drummed out the magic circle for that one because that is actually the trick to Scottish Testaments. Scottishhandwriting.com, Scotland's people, and the fabulous paleographic site at the National Archives, I should point out. And don't worry about Grant Simpson's book because it's a bit too early. So, that's where we're at with uh, that form of inheritance. Problem is, though, you haven't yet, we have not yet got to property, I mean real property records. And that's how this goes. We're now looking for the systems called retours of services of air. Let's talk about those. You have to remember that Scotland was feudal up until 2004. No, seriously, the, the Queen owned everything. Um, we, were, we were still in feudal hierarchy until the Abolition of Feudal Tenures Act, which came in in 2004. And in theory, the Queen was the feudal superior. And what's more, all land could be sub-infeudated. In other words, you could break up a big land holding into smaller bits and sell it on heritably, and that person could break theirs up and sell it on heritably. So you're in a hierarchy of feudal possession. You couldn't do that in England, because sub-infeudation went away in Edward II's time, I think it was. They just stopped doing it. But in Scotland, it was, and this was the basis for our, our land system. And it's fabulous, because it meant everything had to be recorded all the time. Really good. And someone who holds land directly of the crown is a baron, in Scottish terms. It's not a peerage, it's a dignity, and it indicates land holding of the crown. So, feudal system, and the implication was that, that okay, John has died, his son Jimmy is going to get the farm, but it's not quite that straightforward because what happens is, when at the point of death, this, it goes back to the feudal superior, the laird, on elastic, uh, resigned into his hands, and then he regrants it to the son, Jimmy, who gets it. And there's a paper trail showing all this all the way around, which is excellent. The, the main ones are special retours which deal with um, larger land holdings, and they look like this. Uh, here is a retour. And it says, what happened was that you, you basically, you put together a jury of 15 upright and honest men of the country. In other words, local folks. So they would know you, they're probably your neighbours, they might even be relatives, and that's great for a genealogist. It shows who's around. And they had this inquisition. Now that sounds quite grim, but I think it was probably quite a jolly affair. They were all pals, they probably had beer and sandwiches in, you know. And the site looked at all the paperwork and said, yeah, no problem. Uh, Jimmy can get the farm, and so we will retour our 
findings to Edinburgh return and then they will issue a precept of season and Jimmy can get the land. And that's what happened. 15 men on the jury. That's the origin, by the way, of 15 men in a dead man's chest. Chest being his property. It's not what Wikipedia says, but they're wrong. Okay? <laughs> and here is, here is the retour. Look. Haec inquisitio, facta fuit in praetoria seu nova sessionis domo burgi de edem. You're not reading it with me. What's the matter with you? <laughs> A retour is a complicated and sometimes long document. Do you have to bother? Fortunately, no. Because there's this fabulous chap called Thomas Thompson, uh, who was Lord Clark Register at the time, and he indexed and abstracted all of these and printed them in books. Now, up until, there are two sets of these, up until, the, the, the system started in 1599, it goes up to 1700 and then after that they're in English but the early ones are all in Latin but it doesn't matter because they have a rather restricted set of, um, of, of vocabulary associated with them. So I've picked out a couple here. Here's one. It says Robert Mowbray of Baron Bugle and we'll come back to Baron Bugle. Ares Masculus, the heir male of Robert Mowbray Theodotarii, the fewer of, in other words the hereditary holder of the land of Baron Bugle, Patrice his father, in the lands and barony of Damani, that's Dalmeni, that's right under the fourth rail bridge there, uh, with Cum Castro, what big cigar, uh, Fortalis, and the uh, Et Manery, what you guys would call the manor place of Barn Bugle, and there's a good one, Et Advocationibus Ecclesiarium et Capellanarium, and the Advocation, or the Advocation of the Church and the Chaplain, in other words, he gets to appoint the minister which is all what the free church disruption was about a couple of hundred years later. Um, cum Piscariis. Fishing. Yeah, fishing. Whereabouts? In Aquis de Cramond, in the Cramond, the waters of Cramond, and forth, et in aqua salsa, along with a nice tangy sauce. <laughs> no, in the salt water of the forth, right? We'll see where this place is later on. So that's, that's a retour, that's inheritance. We know that Robert is the son of Robert, and he's inherited the land in 1602. But you move on 35 years, and there's the same piece of land now being inherited, not by a Mowbray, but by Thomas Comes, yeah, Earl of Haddington, uh, a Hamilton as it happens, and he's inherited it from his father, Thomas Earl of Haddington. So that tells us that sometime between 1602 and 1637, the Mowbrays sold the land to the Haddingtons so it could be passed on heritably down their chain. All right? And that's where you'd start with the genealogy on that one. He also got the fishing, you'd be pleased to know. <laughs> um, now, the, the, the retours, where do you get these? They're not online, I'm afraid. But you can get them on two CDs from the Scottish Genealogy Society. Go and spend 80 quid on these two. That, that, believe me, they're worth it because I, I look at them every day. And they, they are... At their simplest, they're organised by an index of names, an index nominum, and also an index of quorum, an index of places. So you can look up a place or you can look up a person, which is wonderful. So if you look at Mowbray, I get a number of Mowbray things. And if I look up uh, uh, general retours, which is people not in the direct line, I get these. But it doesn't matter. This is the names thing. And here is uh, an example, 1615. So this, remember 1602 was when the first transfer happened? This says, Dominus Robertus Mowbray. How are you going to translate Dominus, by the way? Notice how it's followed by Miles, which means knight. So this means 
sir. Yes. If it's, if it's followed, if Dominus Robertus Mowbray is followed by Miles or Baronetti, yeah, then he's a sir. And anyway, he can't be a lord, because if he was a lord, he'd be Robertus Dominus Mowbray, Robert Lord Mowbray, wouldn't he? So that's Sir Robert Mowbray of Barnbugle, the heir of Sir John Mowbray of Barnbugle, Abavi, sort of means great uncle. It's anyone in that sort of generation, grandfather's brother type thing, blah, blah. And there are very, and here's another one, 16, oh, we've seen this one, or the same person, Robert Mowbray, the apparent, the, the apparent, the apparent heir. It's not quite the same as heir apparent of Barnbugle, the heir of Robert Mowbray, his father, etc., etc. And here's a cracker. Uh, slightly different branch of the family. Johannes Mowbray, the heir of James Mowbray, Fabri Ferrarii. He built Ferraris. <laughs> Come on, Fabri Ferrarii. Iron uh, Certainly, me metal, yes, iron worker. It doesn't mean blacksmith, by the way. It's, you know, metal worker of a higher kind. Made swords and iron railings and stuff like that. Fratris Germani. His brother German, his, his full brother. Okay. And just to prove a point, this is my lot. And again, these are people who are not recorded anywhere else. This is the evidence of their existence and doings, but it actually, they're, they're very well known. They're not a mystery, these people. But there's Janet Dury, the heir of Robert Dury, de Eodem. That means of that ilk. So Dury of Dury, the barony of Dury. Uh, her father, and she inherits the land in the barony of Dury. Fine. Okay? 1554. Uh, that's Janet. Move on 50 years, and you've got Robert Dury of that ilk, the heir of Janet Dury, Avii. She kept birds. Means grandmother. Now just think about that. How come? She's female. Dury is her maiden name. How come her grandson is called Dury? A cousin marriage? Incest. Incest. <laughs> The family that lays together stays together, eh? <laughs> Otherwise known as rolling your own. No, it's, it's, not, it's not that. There, there's, there's actually, there's a better, uh, it's not a false paternal event either, as we call it. This is a particularly Scottish thing called the entail. I should take offence to some of that when I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Count the fingers, you know? Um, here's, here's the answer. Robert Dury of that elk, that's the same chap as the one above. Heir of Henry Dury of Thomaston, Olam Vocati, once called, previously known as Henry Kemp, his grandfather. What's actually happened is that she's the rich heiress, right? And Henry Kemp is a drinking pal of James V, master of the bedchamber. What kind of job is that, for goodness sake, right? <laughs> and she, John, would you, yes, good job for him, absolutely. Um, John at Dury, but he's got no money. He's a, he's a bit of a waster too. Our family's full of them, as you can see. And uh, he is, Janet is persuaded, in quotes, to marry Henry, but in order that the, that the land succession can continue, because it's entailed to the name Dury, he's got to change his name to Dury. This is why our DNA doesn't work, <laughs> frankly. Um, so he becomes Henry Dury, and then follows on a line after him of Dury's. So they've brought in a stud male, basically. Seriously, and he's changed his name to Dury. Now that happened in, in two or three, well certainly in two of the big branches of our family, and our current chief is descended from uh, a girl who married a chap who changed his name to Dury down there. 
Okay? And the record of that is in the retours, rather than any kind of strictly genealogical record like birth, marriage, death, or anything like that. Um, you didn't have to record the retour the minute the death happened or anything like that. But sometimes they're a generation later because it only became an issue at the next stage of inheritance. So the date that you get on these things is the date of the retour, but the death may be sometime before that. Okay? So that, that's retours. They're really worth investigating because they contain a great deal of genealogy. Um, I'm going to stop in about five minutes, but I'll just rattle through the other things that you might need to look at. Saisons are just conveyances, records of property transfers, buying and selling, and mortgaging. And they go back to the 16th, to about 1600, but they're not really reliable until 1617 when they started the system again. And the reason for having the Saisons recorded was to prevent fraud. Uh, if, I mean, before that, before it was written down, you could sell the same piece of land two or three times or mortgage it three or four times. So they wanted a register of these to see where the land was and no one could be accused of overselling it, for example. Uh, again, another example of Scotland just loves a lawyer and it all gets written down quite nicely. And these are, not digitized, uh, are digitized, but not online, but they are available for view in, in Edinburgh, the Saisons. If, you, if you're looking for a Saison after 1781, the, the extracts are printed in, and in volumes which you can get. And that's, that's the indexes, that's sort of what they look like. They're not terribly good. But let's go to the Mowbrays and all variants. And it shows us that there is a record of a John Mowbray, portioner of Cochirne, and his spouse, Isabel Weems. Well, there's a genealogical clue. Uh, here is Robert at Cramond Brigend. That's probably going to be the same family, because remember the water of Cramond and all that stuff? Yeah. So you can use the Saisons also to track genealogical stuff. And here is a really good example of getting genealogy out. Janet Forsyth, relict of George Wilson in Karma Coop. Oh, there's a good thing. Do you know the difference between of, in, and at in Scotland, Scottish land? If it's of, that means heritable possession. In a sense, you own the land. If you're in, then you're a tenant or a leaseholder, what we call a tax, a taxman on that land. If it's at, you're just living there, okay? So in Carmacoop, uh, Catherine Forsyth, relict of Milligan, Jean Forsyth, relict of Patterson, Force, Mary Forsyth, relict of Reed, and a William Ireland Jr. In other words, there must have been another sister who married a guy called William Ireland, and they are all heirs portioner to John Forsyth of Trelos, their brother and uncle respectively. In other words, there's the family tree. Wonderful, all contained in one paragraph, right? So good information in those. Um, I could bore on about many other kinds of records, but I shan't bother. I just want to show you one fabulous site that is <laughs> it seems to be the best kept secret in Scotland, and I don't know why. It's called Scotland's Places. It's completely free, and it, it has a growing number of records on it, including some quite lovely things, such as the Royal Commission on the ownership of land in Scotland, 1873, that's every piece of land larger than an acre, every owner, yeah? That's a handy thing to have. Also, the ones I really like are the historic tax rolls, such as the farm horse tax and the clock and watch tax. <laughs> you will know, because the same taxes obtained in England, that in the 17, 1790s, there was this incredible, confusing plethora of taxes, window tax, 
clock and watch tax, horse tax, dog tax, male servant tax, female servant tax, composition tax. And eventually somebody said, this is making my head hurt. Why don't we lose the whole thing and just tax people on their income? And that's where income tax started. But the farm horse tax is um, essentially a census of uh, tenant farmers, pretty much. Anybody who's got a working horse. And number of horses they have, number they're paying duty on, etc. And that's 1790s. So that, that's a very good thing if you're tracking down not landowners so much as people with working farms. Okay? And you can tie it up pretty much 100 years later, 80 years later with the land ownership. And, and then you've got the censuses in between, so you can look at those, etc. A uh, book by Loretta Timperley done much earlier where you can compare it 100 years before that. And I would commend you, if you're looking for anywhere, to go looking at the fabulous free maps at the National Library of Scotland, which will take you right back to uh, the earliest maps we have, Joan Blau, which were based on the work of Timothy. This is Barn Bugle, by the way, where the Mowbrays lived. Yeah? Um, the, the maps of Timothy Pont, which are just, aren't these just excellent? 1570s, 1590s, he, he went around Scotland just drawing what he saw. And the really good thing about it is that he did draw the buildings as they are. And in some cases, they are the only record of what a building looked like at the time. You can reckon that's still there. That's St. John's Kirk, and that is Schoon uh, Palace up there. And they really look like that. Fabulously detailed maps. The one I always show in Glasgow, interestingly, shows the rather small. Glasgow was a fishing village with a university and a cathedral, you know. But it was across the river from the far bigger and much more important commercial centre of Rutherglen, <laughs> which, which now doesn't even have a shopping centre, you know. There we are there. So you, you tying all these things up together, I like that one because Herman Moll, also a Dutchman, believes that the water is called the Frith of Froth. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Um, and if you ever get a chance to look at John Wood's town maps, they're good because they actually have people's names in them. Proposed boiling house. What were they proposing to boil, do you think, in Burnt Island? No, serious question. Have a guess. Somebody last night said toffees, and there was indeed a sweetie factory there, but that's not it. Any other ideas? Tallow. Whale oil for tallow. Absolutely. But using the coal, using the local coal to do that, and the salt nearby and all the rest of it. Let's not worry about that. So how do you, how do you track land ownership? I say, I always say, start with a census if you possibly can. You know what censuses are like. They're a snapshot of one family at one place in time, and they tie them down and work backwards from there. I also say... If you know where the place is, start with, with modern-day maps so you can identify the geography and then work back, because the names will change, you know. There's Barn Boogle, Barn Burg Hall, Barn Bougal, etc. And would you even find it if you looked it up? But if you know where it is, you can track it back in time. Um, do look at wills and testaments so that they can be unrevealing. Retours, fabulous for inheritance right up to the 1860s. Uh, easy to get to in terms of their indexes contain all you want to know. Saisons, if you can, lots of other local stuff. We shan't even bother touching on heraldry. That's another key to it. And um, thank you for your attention. And don't worry about the Latin. That's just me, OK? <laughs> thank you very much.
This event was recorded live on the 24th of February 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.